0: Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: We are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: And uh, before we get into the episode or even start the episode, I just wanted to thank Theo from the Gallant Goblin for coming on to our show last episode. Yeah. And if you're listening to this episode because you were a fan of Theo's and now you want to listen to our episodes to try to become a fan of ours we're sorry
1: yeah welcome (laughs) aboard and you picked a weird one to start with
0: that's right that's right to be honest most of them are weird (laughs) <laughs> Most of them are Well, they're going to get weirder. So, so thank you, Theo. We appreciate your time coming onto the show, the conversation, and it was it was a great it was a great conversation. And we're definitely looking forward to collaborate with you and the Gallant Goblin in the future. And if you haven't yet, go check out Theo's channel. They really run a a, a great ship over there called the Gallant Goblin, and they do unboxings and reviews of. D products primarily uh miniatures yeah yeah but it's great they all and they always do a very thorough job with their review and i was mentioning i was talking we were talking with theo uh before and after the show and i did mention that uh him and grady really put together probably the most methodically constructed youtube videos out there and are just so well organized it really comes across and as it does, it's just a really high production value. Once again, uh, check out the Gallant Goblin. And thank you very much, Theo, for coming onto our show. And we, we we really appreciate all of our guests that come on as, as we come along here. And it's, it's great having guests and being guests. And it's fun just meeting and talking to people and creators that we wouldn't normally talk to in our daily life. So anyway, speaking of our daily life. So recently, I have been playing a game called
1: nebuchadnezzar
0: nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar such as the mesopotamian ruler back from a long time ago (laughs) so nebuchadnezzar was developed and published by nepos and was came out uh, february 17th of 2021 which i think is the first game that was released in 2021 that we are talking about possibly nice
1: hey Uh, i don't know i'm not gonna hold you to it though
0: no i mean there am i that's um... um
1: that's our, our resident corrector-in-chief, Doug.
0: Oh, um, Doug, he'll, he'll yeah. He'll hold us to that. Yes, Doug is our corrections editor. Uh, he's actually, we have a, a an office that he works in, and whenever we get something wrong, he usually throws his hands up in the air and storms out.
1: Right. But it's his job to tell us after we've got it wrong. He doesn't. He doesn't proof anything. <laughs>
0: he can't. He can't proof. Nor can he interrupt the pod in progress. Um, once we put up the recording sign, we're immune to any of his rants. Uh, then once the returning sign turns off, he just screams at us. It's really rough working for Doug. But <laughs> it is. It is. So Nebuchadnezzar is a spiritual successor to those of the Impressions games, such as Pharaoh, Caesar, Zeus etc and it's a a city builder type game where and it definitely pulls that vibe of being a city builder set in ancient society it brings in some mechanics that weren't in previous like the in, in the impression games uh such as some irrigation mechanics that are new at least to me and zoning essentially your farms and making sure that your farms are in close enough location to like warehouses, because if the buildings are too far away, they won't immediately work with each other. They have to be in kind of like a radius of, of operations kind of thing. Nebuchadnezzar, so far for me has been a good city builder. I've probably played two or three hours of it so far. I got through most of the tutorial and I'm on to cities where they're just letting me do whatever I want finally. And it's good. I appreciate what they're doing with it. I really like the art style with it. It's more the art style is done similar to how the Impressions games were versus like a 3D type of situation. So, and I like that. The, The only thing that has me like my criticism to the game is that it doesn't necessarily feel like a living city. In the impression games, if you played any of them, when you placed down a building, people would emerge from that building and just wander. And you kind of had to direct them and make sure that they wandered in the right directions in order to improve the city. Like they had to pass by certain towns and stuff like that. And sometimes you made districts and zones in your city that you couldn't improve because it just wasn't feasible to get all of those people to wander over to that area. Especially if you had like a far off mine or something like that. And you needed to staff it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have that type of wandering. Generally people, if they're walking the city streets, they have a job And you probably also assigned them to the specific path that they can walk in. And you also can't click on anybody like your citizens, which was a hallmark of the impression games where you could click on them and they would say something, which is something that I feel is a little lacking. I think that they're doing a good job and I think that they're on the right path with the game, Um, though I feel like they could. If they could add these things, it would make the game even better and closer to the what they're going for for the spiritual successor to those impression games. Though I did I did buy the game since I've been playing it and I paid the, the it retails right now at $19.99. I'm sure at some point in time it will go on sale. But So if you like those City Builder games, if you like them a lot, I'm playing it and I'm enjoying it. So there's that. If you're on the fence about it, uh, you might want to wait for a sale. So there's been times where I've been really excited about a game and I've purchased it and I have been sorely disappointed with the game. Mm. And that happens a lot with me. I don't feel that way about Nebuchadnezzar. I feel that That's it's good. still a fun game. I still like it feels very impressiony. Um, I do hear the criticism that and feel the criticism that should they could make it a little more like the city's a little more alive. But apart from that, I think they did a good job with it. And I like it. I don't feel like I've wasted money and I'll definitely play more of it. So I'm excited about it. So there's that. Nebuchadnezzar.
1: Nebuchadnezzar. All right. So the game that I've recently been playing is called Super Painter. It came out in 2018 by our buddies over at Mega Cat Studios, who we actually had the chance to meet during our PAX trip way back in episode 14 or so. Um, we did our post packs pod where we talked about packs and we mentioned meeting mega cat studio so that was fun or meeting some representatives from them we didn't meet the entire studio that would have been impressive so super painter originally came out in 2018 for the for the original nintendo and you play as a character who goes by the name super painter kind of like super mario where you're trapped in this colorless world and you're armed with a paintbrush and you have to paint um, the idea is you kind of paint in areas that are gray. And after you've painted in the arbitrary number of areas in, given in, in a given map, you go to the next zone and repeat 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 so the obviously the levels change there's kind of some new and interesting puzzles so the first few puzzles everything's flat and then then they add in some vertical puzzles that you have to kind of like jump to get certain sections and there's enemies that uh, appear that you have to avoid so a lot of um, a lot of fun different elements to it i've been playing on the evercade which is a handheld system that came out A few, about a year or so ago, I I got my Evercade as a Christmas gift, and it's a portable handheld. I already said it's handheld, so it implies that it's portable.
0: You can only play it in one location. Yes, that's right.
1: It is a a handheld system that has cartridges, which is kind of unique for a modern-day video game handheld. Um, It uses, like, proper cartridges. A lot of the cartridges they've been releasing have been compilation cartridges of different games, such as titles from the original Atari and Titles from places like Mega Cat Studios. So uh, I have a Mega Cat Studios cartridge which has Super Painter on it. I've just been popping it in and playing it every now and then. It's one of those games that you can kind of just play for a little bit and uh you know turn off if you get a game over or if you kind of get a little tired of it. If, I I personally don't find myself getting super tired of it playing it, but um it's definitely one of those like uh, time waster games I would say. Almost like back when you would play like Chips Challenge on the old uh, Windows system or Minesweeper or something like that or Sokoban, where it's something that you can kind of do for a brief period of time just to kind of waste a little bit of time and uh, see how much, how high of a score you can get before you get a game over. And then by the time you get a game over, you'll probably be pretty much finished with playing it anyway. So today uh, we're going to be talking about some hardware. We're going back to our favorite company, Sega.
0: Yes, so Sega does what Nintendo. That's
1: right, except this time Sega did what Nintendo did because we're talking about the Game Gear, Seth, which was Sega's answer to the Nintendo Game Boy.
0: Yeah that was a thing
1: it was a thing it was a thing we're also going to be talking a little bit about the sega nomad which was not a thing well it's not as a big of a thing i guess
0: so zach let's talk about sega game gear why don't you tell me about your memories that you've had
1: i remember our father buying us uh buying me it might have been us i just remember being there when i got it um a a sega game gear from uh, the store Ames. um i don't know uh, anyone out there who might remember Ames, but there was an Ames in our hometown and uh, they were liquidating their game gear stock so when you entered the the aims, they had like right by the entrance, just hundreds of Game Gears stacked up that they were just trying to get rid of. I assume because they weren't selling. Now, my father knew we were a Sega family, so we had to have the Sega system. Um, so we picked up a, a, a Sega Game Gear and I also got, I think it was Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for the Game Gear which is separate from Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for the Genesis almost entirely, like whole different levels and such. And also got Disney's Aladdin for the Game Gear. So we we bought those. I went home. I remember going home with this new console, like new, brand new in a box, which was like a first for me having this like new console to myself sort of thing and a copy of disney's aladdin i think sonic 2 i had we had to get six AA batteries for this thing so i remember putting in the batteries and sitting down at the kitchen table turning on disney's aladdin i played it for like probably about two hours and then the system just turned off and i was like that's it because it only lasted about two hours or so on on battery i actually still have my original game gear it is missing its battery packs i believe i can get 3d printed ones or like new old stock Um, so I could technically just get replacement battery packs. I am lazy and I haven't done that yet, but I might do that now that I'm thinking about it and have a nice little complete looking game gear. I could also actually swap out the screen put a new uh proper battery like a lithium-ion battery or something but that would take some time and effort so anyway that's my memories with the game gear seth what memories do you have about the game gear
0: well before i get to my memories about my game gear just so because i know we do have an audience that extends outside of the northeast corridor for those who are listening who have no idea what Ames is, oh, is yeah a, sorry <laughs> it is it's kind of like a department store that generally were anchors in strip malls kind of like a walmart or i think more equivalent to like a uh tj maxx or something like that where you go in and you're looking for bargains they operated about 308 stores and they are defunct <laughs> their their original website is captured on web archives if you ever want to learn a little bit about Ames, <laughs> it's opt it's optimized for netscape 2.0 oh, beautiful so that's that's where our, fa- our family would shop because it was also for the frugally minded person my memories about the Game Gear were that we uh, we had one. It was heavy, and it would play a game for about ten minutes, and then it would die. Yeah, that sounds about right. I remember the Sonic game had a mine level.
1: Yeah, that was really yeah. That's tough. the first one. Yeah, that's the first. Yeah, level. you can't
0: and you can't get out of it or beat it. It's really hard.
1: Yeah. Fun fact about that: the Sonic game for the Game Gear, at least the second one that we had, is not optimized for the Game Gear, and we'll talk about that a little later. How a lot of games are ported over from the Master System which was designed to go on your television screen, which is much larger than the fairly small Game Gear screen. So the games were sometimes not optimized to run on a smaller screen, which the Sonic game suffered from. The final boss was like impossible for that. Going into the Game Gear, the Game Gear began life under uh, a development title of Project Mercury. Sega really liked using planet names for their project titles. Well, I mean, they released the Saturn, but they also were working on a console called the Neptune at one point. And they, they had a project, in line for sonic that they called sonic mars so they definitely have like a planet motifs planet motif when it comes to development stuff and as one can infer at least even by the name and by the concept of a portable gaming system it was done pretty much just to compete with the nintendo game boy the game boy came out in 1989 the game gear came out in the 90s so there you have it sega's then ceo hayao nakayama made the decision to enter the handheld market solely so they could compete I mean, he he saw that Game Boy was doing well and he was like, hey, I want
0: that, which already puts you at a disadvantage. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you you see these people come to market with which uh, so first of all that surprises me that no one at Sega knew that Nintendo was developing a Game Boy before the Game Boy came out in 89. Like why why wasn't it like 87, 86 right. when there was rumblings of Game Boy making Game Boys that Sega why Sega should have tried to get first to market or at least closely behind, but being like, "Oh, the what year did the game gear actually release
1: 1990 in japan and 91 in north america
0: yeah so they were kind of behind so they had to have some inkling that it was coming out but to be like oh the game boy came out and then like a year later, release yours. Yeah. <laughs> or almost two years later, release in North America. Now Game Boy already has a year or two of sale. Like they know kind of like how their Game Boy is had doing. Had a foothold, yeah. Not only that, but how to make it better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and as we learned with the Game Boy, we got the Game Boy Color and the Game Boy got slimmer. It got lighter. You got smaller Game Boy formats where Sega entered the market with this gigantic thing. Yes, they had color before, but it was not as portable. I think right
1: the fact that the the game gear came out the way it did it was 100% rushed to market and to do this when you rush something to market you have to make cost-cutting decisions which aren't always a good idea correct one of the first cost-cutting decisions that they made which actually I don't think was a bad cost-cutting decision was basing the architecture off the game gear on a pre-existing console so they based the architecture on the game gear on the sega master system basically what that means was that they used a modified version of the hardware to create their handheld the Sega master system we'll talk about maybe in a future episode wasn't a super big success for sega but it was one of their earliest game systems Uh, kind of was like a slightly more powerful nintendo or like original Nintendo,
0: but... It wasn't no Genesis. It was
1: no Genesis. But basing your hardware on something that was previously in existence is great for a number of reasons. For one, it's familiarity. And for two, you can easily bring over titles from that previous uh, machine onto this new one. The Game Gear, though, was a slightly more beefier in terms of what it could do versus what the Master System could do. For one thing, the Game Gear had a much larger color palette. It had about 4,096 colors, as opposed to the 64 colors that the Master System could do so this was also already superior to the game boy because the game gear was a color system Game Boy was only monochrome. It was actually green monochrome. It wasn't like black and white. It was this green tint. Another thing that Game Gear had that Game Boy didn't have was a backlight. With your Game Gear games, you could play in the dark. You could turn on your Game Gear and the light would be there and it would be on. It also had a contrast um, uh, slider so that you could actually adjust it if you wanted to hold it in different positions to allow the backlight to work properly from different angles. With this backlight and the color screen, the Game Gear was already a much more powerful system. Than the Game Boy. But with great power comes a great cost. To paraphrase Uncle Ben, the Game Gear had a terrible battery life. Uh, let's put it in perspective right now. The Game Boy could run 30 hours on four AA batteries, meaning you pop in four AA batteries, you put in your copy of Tetris, and you turned it on, you could just put it down, and it would sit there for 30 hours. The Game Gear required six AA batteries and could only run up to three to five hours.
0: <laughs> and I think that brings it a couple of things in, in play right there. First of all, batteries aren't cheap. They're an expensive commodity to buy. And these batteries, as they are, generally are not rechargeable unless you have some special equipment to recharge them. But you, you generally, the standard consumer buys batteries as a disposable product. You needed to buy a 12 pack of batteries to run your game gear for six hours. Right,
1: Yeah. Which, like, if you're going on a long car trip, what would you rather have? A system that could last 30 hours that you don't have to worry about? Or the Game Gear? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's a
0: pack of batteries yeah. for six hours. That's That's a trip to Maine and back.
1: I remember going on trips with my Game Gear and having a bag of batteries, like, in a, like, separate, packed with me. Just just in case, you know? Yeah, it's
0: ridiculous. With the Game Boy, you you could forget to bring batteries
1: at all you could buy a rechargeable nickel cadmium battery pack which was expensive first of all and also that added plenty of heft to the already beefy system so you already have a kind of brick of a system and then you're strapping on this like extra brick to it really not ideal for for even the minimum of additional battery life that that could support the game library also suffered uh so Nintendo made it to market first and when you make it to market first you get first dibs on especially third party developers so Nintendo has already signed contracts with third party developers who are signing exclusivity deals with Nintendo so that they couldn't create games for the Game Gear even if they wanted to. You had games coming out for the Game Boy that could have probably come out for the Game Gear, but due to exclusivity deals and contracts such as that, they were never going to come out. Only 300 or so titles were released worldwide for the Game Gear, and some titles were region restricted. Um so some titles only came out in Japan, some titles only came out in North America, etc. So in reality, you had it, depending on your region you had less than 300 or so titles to pick from now some titles were directly ported over from the master system as mentioned they're built on similar architecture supporting so them over didn't require too too much effort um, really the one thing you had to do was you had to change your screen size so the games would be slightly impacted because they would have smaller screen real estate but for the most part were fairly accurate ports to their master system counterparts uh, this includes some master system titles such as the 8-bit version of Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic the Hedgehog 2. There's also a game called Sonic Chaos, which was exclusive to the Master System and the, the Game Gear. And there was a uh, Land of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse, um, which was a, a pretty good title there are also ports of sega genesis games and these had to be reworked considerably because these were 16-bit games looking to work on 8-bit hardware so they had to completely remake some of the games Um, this included like the disney's aladdin game that i played um, which was originally released on the sega genesis or a version of ristar which was a great game there was also an optional master gear converter which allowed you to play any master system game cartridge Uh, i specifically say game cartridge because the master system actually came out on both cartridge and these like cards that kind of looked like little credit cards that you could insert into the system this converter did not allow you to play cards it was just the cartridge based games which was the majority of titles but i mean that's not really portability is it i mean if you think about something like the game boy and it's vastly bigger library of games you could easily carry maybe 10 game boy games in in a backpack or your pockets without much room for worry you know especially someone maybe like younger so maybe like little zach in his cargo pants could have fit a game boy in one pocket and a stack of games in the other pocket if you're carrying master system games these are for a home console (laughs) that's not portability (laughs) and they looked chunky coming out of this thing uh you know obviously not ideal now along with the games there were also some interesting accessories that um, were unique to the game gear there was a notable thing called the tv tuner it was expensive but it did allow you to tune into analog television signals which was kind of cool i mean you could uh make use of your game gear and watch some TV. There are also power adapters for cigarette lighter ports in the car. So going with, you know, a complaint, you know, if you're driving to Maine, you could either bring 12 batteries or you could buy the power adapter that you could plug directly into the car cigarette lighter port, um, which was an option available. There's also a data cable that you could uh, get that allowed for multiplayer, very similar to the Link cable, which was available for the Game Boy.
0: Which I I also think that if you have to plug in your product, everywhere it's you go. Portable. It's not really portable. Yeah, <laughs> it defeats the purpose. Uh, the Game Gear was released in Japan on October 6th of 1990, and it did actually pretty well. It sold about 40,000 units in its first two days, and up to 90,000 units within a month. And there was also portedly back orders upwards of 600,000 units after its original release. However, as we've learned in the past, Sega Japan and Sega America tend to do things a little differently, and Sega America doesn't always always get the best of the best over (laughs) from japan (laughs) and tend to be disaligned with its parent company and the marketing in america was bad and it did not do well because of it the marketing in america was not just bad it was also sometimes downright offensive Mm. where they were making fun of people with disabilities and health issues where they even there they would try to compare saying that you would buy a game boy if you were colorblind or had an iq of less than 12 mm, yeah and then you wouldn't care what portable you had because they were saying you were stupid for buying a game for buying a game boy instead of a game gear because of the difference in power that the game gear had it, it really offending people is probably not the best way to convince somebody to buy your product no <laughs> Not at all. And by March of 1996, the system had sold about 10.62 million units, though it was never able to make it to the same level of sales as Nintendo's Game Boy, which I think we also are due to do an episode on yeah. as well.
1: Um, and I forgot to include the note, but for reference, the Game Boy was doing about 10 times better than the Game Gear was by 96. So,
0: so the Game Boy was doing 100 million at a clip where the Sega Game Gear was getting up to around 10.6. Uh, also, as soon as the Game Gear was released, as we spoke earlier or speculated earlier, Nintendo released the Game Boy Pocket, which was slimmed down from the Game Boy that you could run on to AAA batteries, which was cheaper in the yeah, long run. Yeah. If you wanted a portable game system, it was cheaper in the long run to buy the Game Boy completely versus the Game Gear, especially since the Game Gear on release retailed for $149. 99 which the game boy was selling for 89.99 and the pocket game boy was selling for 69.99 yeah not only did it cost you more money to buy the game gear it also cost you more money to run the game gear let's do some napkin math here let's assume for the purpose of this napkin math i'm basing buying batteries at a 24 pack for 16 bucks just based on some some quick googling kind of that's where i'm i'm falling in at at the end of the day that's about 65 cents a battery which we'll use that as just our standard and we're going to use the same 65 cents for AAA or double a doesn't matter 65 cents a battery so for you to run 30 hours of the game boy it would cost you four batteries to do so the cost of four batteries is two dollars and sixty cents 92 dollars and sixty cents gets you a game boy probably gets you a game and gets you 30 hours of gameplay. For $70 plus a buck 30, you can get a Game Boy Pocket and you can get 30 hours of gameplay. Now, if you wanted 30 hours out of the game gear, it would cost you $30.25 to run six. Double A batteries at four hours a set for 30 hours. That's seven and a half times you have to switch out the batteries. So on top of the $150 price tag, you're looking at $180 to play the same amount of time to buy a Game Gear. Get the free game that comes with it, hopefully. And to get the thirty hours of gameplay that your friends are playing on the Game Boy, with probably a, a, a less a less popular IP, because Pokemon and Final Fantasy were all on the Game Boys, and were uh, very good. So yeah, hundred and hundred and eighty dollars versus six seventy seventy one dollars. So you could buy two Game Boys, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and have two people play those two Game Boys for six, 36 You can play two Game Boys and, in fact, play sixty hours for the cost of one Game Gear. Not bad and the 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 hours associated with it so uh in 2000 however there was a company called majesco who began developing cheaper versions of the game gear and retailed them in 2000 for 30 dollars since it was also no longer supported by sega uh Since then, Game Gear games have also been released on a variety of other systems, such as the 3DS Virtual Console through Nintendo. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) For the 60th anniversary of the company, uh, Sega revealed the Game Gear Micro Console in Japan. They are keychain devices that play a few games from the library the micro measures three and one 14th of an inch by 1.69 of an inch by 0. 0.79 inch with a 1.1 1. 1 inch display which is very tiny very micro it is, it is a
1: it is actually kind of adorable looking um definitely not the way to play the game here like if you want to play game gear games there is Certainly better ways to play it, but if you are a Game Gear enthusiast, then have at it. I think it'd
0: be fun. How much do those keychains go for? Um,
1: Let's actually take a look real quick. They're only in Japan at the moment. I don't think they've come over to the States yet. I think they're like 50 bucks. So, Sega was not quite done with the handheld market, though they probably should have been. (laughs) While it wasn't the Game Gear 2, Sega did release something called The Nomad, which was their second attempt to capture this market at a lot later of a time (laughs) so unlike the game gear which was though based on the master system still a new system i mean the games had to be reworked these weren't straight over you know you weren't playing master system games unless you had the converter with the Game Gear cartridges. The Nomad was literally a Sega Genesis. 100%. Just a Sega Genesis that was stripped down into a portable form factor. So, the original concept for the Nomad actually was born out of a 1994 Japanese exclusive console called the Mega Jet. Now, the Mega Jet was a Sega Genesis, or rather, Sega Mega Drive, that could be hooked up to a television screen on the Japanese airline flights. And it was powered by a cigarette lighter port, which that's good. That's good that you are using the cigarette lighter port on your air. To play video games and not to smoke. Don't smoke on the air, airline. Bad idea to smoke on planes. The Mega Jet itself actually looks more similar to a Game Gear. It just completely lacked a screen, so it was just hookups. As And separate from the Game Gear, it played Genesis games or Mega Drive games. Now, the Mega Jet wasn't really a success for, for Sega, but they did like this idea of a portable Sega Genesis, so they wanted to create what would become the Nomad using this idea. The Nomad is actually fully compatible with a majority of Sega Genesis titles and other peripherals such as the Mega Mouse which is the mouse peripheral that you don't really use for anything I think <laughs> the Sega Channel network add-on which was a separate cartridge that you could plug in and hook up to your phone line so you could play some network games and Ooh. uh various controllers and stuff like that like the Activator which was like a motion controller um didn't work but they had
0: it sounds like most of Sega's products
1: um however the Nomad was not compatible with the Sega CD the 32X or the power base converter which was a tool that allowed Master System games to be played on a Sega Genesis. This meant that the Nomad would have to just stick to Sega Genesis titles, which isn't a terrible thing. The Nomad was also only released in North America, which is why I keep saying Sega Genesis, because in North America, it was the Genesis. It wasn't the Mega Drive. So this wasn't a Sega Mega Drive handheld. This was a Sega Genesis. Um, There were no European or Japanese Nomads.
0: So now wanting to play Sega Genesis games, especially in their late 90s, on the go, may seem like something that would be cool and appealing. I mean, people do that now with Raspberry Pis on the go. They play some Sega Genesis games. Or on your phone, you play some Sega Genesis games. But the Nomad did have some compatibility issues with some early third-party games. It also prevented any games from the non-US market from being played. So only US titles... because it was regionally locking everybody else out. And Sega did not learn <laughs> from the Game Gear. And it had about two to three hours of battery life with a whopping six AA batteries requirement. So let me tell you, six double AA batteries are hefty when you're trying to play a game on the go. Mm. The system sold between 1995 and 1999 and only 1 million units were reportedly bought. On the release, the system was sold for 180 dollars and by 1999 this was dropped to 60 bucks
1: <laughs> <laughs> terrible no, sega, <laughs>
0: sega just doesn't doesn't get it they just don't understand and and i mean this which is why they're predominantly out of the console market sega also didn't really heavily market the nomad as at the time they were really focused on the release of the sega saturn and didn't have any push to market what was going to be an obsolete system yeah I
1: think to Sega, it was like, at least to the people who are marketing in North America, it was like, why? (laughs) Like, we have a Saturn coming out, which is going to be better than the Genesis, right? Right. I mean, it wasn't, but it could have been. And why would they market obsolete tech that was destined to fail, almost?
0: Right. And we talk about this in our Sega Saturn episode, where essentially Sega Japan was working on the Sega Saturn and Sega America was working on the 32x yeah yeah and the nomad like sega america was like we got this cool nomad we got this cool 32x we got all these cool systems but why aren't we getting the budget to market them and japan's like we're working on sega Saturn, (laughs) yeah we're we're, we're good (laughs) (laughs) which is nothing to do with the cartridge based system anymore we're leaving that behind and we're moving towards the future and sega america's like let's do this we're gonna make this nomad thing and we're gonna sell it for 180 bucks we're not we're not selling anything And the disconnection between Mm. the two companies in America and Japan just are so stark when it comes to these releases, especially towards the later end of the 90s. And at the end of the 90s and moving into the 2000s, you can really see the disconnection and the fragmentation between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. Yeah. And how they just didn't talk to each other and weren't aligned, but still release things under the same umbrella, the same brand. It's
1: weird because they feel like they're separate. Separate companies, almost. They are. They are. They really
0: are. They are separate companies that just are. They're like a franchise of Sega of Japan, and you know, like the franchise owners just running around doing whatever they want. And it's just like if you had like a a Subway, but instead of Subway, you sold pizza. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're like, I own a Subway franchise, so I'm making Subway. But when you come in, it's an Italian pizzeria. And you're like, "What? I I don't understand. Like you go in as a consumer of Subway thinking you're going to get a sandwich. And then you are delivered a pizza. And that's essentially what's going on with Sega of America and Sega of Japan. You look for a Sega product and you get the 32X or you get the Nomad. And you're like, what is this? I can almost
1: see what Sega was kind of, or at least Sega of America was kind of thinking at least with the Nomad nomad because they released the 32x in 94 so a year before the nomad and like i can totally see Sega of america people sitting down and being like oh it's going to be a good year to be a genesis fan first off you got the 32x which is a way to expand your library on the genesis and the year after we're giving you the nomad so you can take those games on the go and meanwhile Sega, Sega of japan was like what <laughs> like why <laughs> like we've got a better thing coming out it's going to be better <laughs> Alas, that was Sega uh, and their attempt at creating the handheld game systems. Twice. they learned their lesson and did not release anymore but to be fair i don't know they
0: don't think they did learn their lesson because they (laughs) released another one they they never learned
1: sega does not learn their lesson this obviously will not be the last time we talk about sega nor their hardware the the thing with sega is i love them dearly but they had one good system and that was it (laughs) like they had a cool system which was the dreamcast and then they had a successful system, which was the Genesis and nothing else. Everything else was yeah. pretty much an abject failure. I love, I love Sega and they'll always have my heart, but they are a mess. So we will obviously mention the master system later and maybe a later episode um it wasn't a system that seth and i grew up with so we don't have as many memories of it but we wanted to tell you guys a bit about the game gear and our memories of it and this little oddity known as the nomad because honestly when else are we going to talk about the nomad
0: right but we we do we do have the sega master system in the plans to talk about uh later on uh, in the yeah. year and we will if people are interested in hearing about the sega master sooner rather than later send us an email and we can definitely kick it up on the schedule
1: yeah we're going to get into our by weight pass section right now uh so this is the section where we talk about games that we are interested in buying, waiting, or passing on. Seth, as you did your recently played first, I'm gonna do my wait, pass first. So my wait, pass is going to be Age of Empires 4. Age of Empires 4 by Relic Entertainment. Uh so Age of Empires 4 was originally revealed back in 2019 via some gameplay footage that was showed at an event and it's the official follow-up to the popular Age of Empires franchise. Uh the game looks to be an update to the familiar gameplay of the previous Age of Empire games, which are uh, real-time strategy games, very similar to that of the Westwood titles from like Command & Conquer or the Blizzard titles like Warcraft. Maybe someday we'll do a whole thing on Age of Empires. Age of Empires 4 looks beautiful, at least from the early gameplay footage I've seen of it from the 2019 reveal trailer. However, we haven't really heard too, too much about it since then. They still have their website up, so I don't think it's been canceled. <laughs> at least I hope it's not. But in any case, it's rumored to be coming out this year, 2021. I will probably wait. <laughs> I love Age of Empires, but the reason I want to wait is because I just want to kind of figure out how the early reviews are. The company Relic Entertainment, I'm sure they've done some pretty good games before. I think they actually worked on a couple of the Warhammer games, a couple of the uh, RTS Warhammer games, and they also worked on Company of Heroes, which uh, is a good real-time strategy game. So I'm sure it's in good hands, but obviously with a franchise like Age of Empires, a franchise that I'm very fond of, I I kind of want to see how other people react to it before I pick it up. I probably will grab it, but at least... For the time being, I'm gonna put it down as a wait. Um, we'll, we'll keep my eye out on it.
0: The game that I'm excited about buying, waiting, or passing on is a game called The Shore. It is a game that uh actually came out and was was developed and published by Ares Dragonis and came out very recently as of February nineteenth of twenty twenty-one. And it is a uh a first-person story-driven game with an atmospheric environment and narration where you'll encounter mysterious creatures and unravel the secrets behind them. It's got Really strong horror elements and the struggle to go up against like an unknown world which questions your sanity. So very Lovecraftian and very Call of Cthulhu, which I do as well. I actually played all of Call of Cthulhu, which took me about 40 hours and was really, really enjoyable. I really liked the Call of Cthulhu game, the new-ish one. And if it's like that game, I probably will like it. It is a small indie development game team or looks it does look like it is a smaller team so they probably won't have the Lovecraftian license but I think it's an open can you just use it
1: Yeah so Lovecraft stuff is public domain
0: Yeah so they could do Yeah it.
1: I think as long as you are careful with it so obviously you don't want to have like a Call of Cthulhu story that's really similar to the like established Call of Cthulhu RPG or or adventure game unless you get sign off unless you get sign off and stuff like that but like uh, you could technically just put out a Lovecraft title without much worry.
0: So it's cool. So it's probably gonna have some Lovecrafty and stuff into it. I'm gonna put it down as a wait. Uh, I generally have horror moods where I get into a state where I play a lot of horror games and then I don't play them for a while. So I'm in my off season right now. Generally around spooky time around October is when I start playing a lot of them. But I, you never know. The f- mood might hit me. But I'm gonna put it down as a wait until uh, I kind of see how it does and until that mood strikes me. Um, but if you like love crafty and type horror games maybe you should check it out not you zach but you the listener or i would recommend checking out call of cthulhu the game so if you like horror theme type stuff call of cthulhu or maybe the shore so there's those games uh so yeah we we always like to end with having ways where you can contact us support us or listen to us uh so some of the ways that you can contact us you can send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com you can also send it to seth at classicgamingbrothers.com zach at classicgamingbrothers.com or ClassicGamingBrothers at ClassicGamingBrothers.com. Send it all. It goes in the same email box. If you want to use a website form, because why not, you can head over to our website, which is ClassicGamingBrothers.com. And at that website, there'll be a contact button while you're there that gets into our next topic you can listen to us which i think it was the next topic completely forgotten what the order of the word to begin with
1: i'm gonna say it's the next topic
0: so you go and you can listen to us and you can head over to the lounge where you can listen to us and maybe turn on some classic gaming brothers turn the lights dim the lights sit back in a cozy chair and just listen to us and probably fall asleep because we are uh we're if you listen to us to help you get to sleep that's fine we We'll take that. But if you listen to us and enjoy the content, great. You can also, if you don't feel like listening to us on our website, you can listen to us on any number of podcasting apps. Uh, we're available uh, to name a few iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Spotify. Those are a few and a few more. um So just check us out. You can check any listening app that you use. I'm sure you use one and just search Classic Gaming Brothers and it you will inevitably find us. And if you don't find us, you can always let us know what app you've tried to find us on you couldn't and we will get on it or try to at least npr we're still trying to become an npr station yeah so
1: i am i am waiting for my npr affiliate official letter in the mail
0: official official npr affiliate well finally how do you can support us you really want to support us you like the podcast well we don't necessarily ask for your money we just ask for your heart and <laughs> not like not like indiana jones asked for God. your heart ah. we ask for just just to lend us an ear or may, or maybe help other people when you a junior like um, we produce <laughs> we produce all this content by ourselves as evident by the quality <laughs> and what are you talking
1: about we got a team of writers we
0: yeah, a thousand the, that, we need to fire them <laughs> we need to fire those writers seriously though we, we, we produce this stuff by ourselves it is a hobby of ours so it's not like we don't nec- we're not going to make a living out of this and we're not going to charge you for this so you'll always get our content free of charge we have no intention of ever charging for this as a service and we have no intention of ever asking for money but if you want to support us and you're desperate to support us there's some things you can do you could rate us review us and and listen to us on whatever application you use probably the number one thing that you can do for us is to give us a good rating on whatever service you use and to write up a review or something that you like the show uh you can send us feedback we love having feedback and episodes that'd be great as well and honestly those are probably the top things that we would want you to do uh you could also listen to additional more you can listen to more episodes that's also a good thing if, if there's an episode that you haven't listened to i'm looking at you arcade episode about pong pac-man and donkey gong that episode needs some love so go on check that episode out if you haven't listened to it already it's it's a good one uh well it's it's not bad it's uh, no it's it's good i like it i like it it's a good episode it's interesting it's it covers some things that are new yeah that to the show so you know check out those episodes that uh you haven't checked out that's that's another thing you can do to support us and honestly just letting your friends know and following us on social media Um, We we have a Facebook. You can like and subscribe. We have an Instagram. And we have a Twitter. So our Facebook and Instagram are Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is Pod And then we also have a Twitch where we'll play games. You can follow us there. And that's twitch.tv slash Classic Gaming Brothers. So just Google us and I'm sure you can find our stuff. But really, just getting to this part of the episode and listening to these words is support enough for us. And we appreciate you here. It's a fun journey to be on. We like producing this content and we will produce more and as long as there's people listening uh we'll we'll keep making episodes of classic gaming brothers we'll maybe change the format up a little bit we maybe change some ideas but i think we will continue to make a show for you and try to get it to you on sunday which we have not failed yet so
1: knock on wood we
0: knock on wood so far we've hit, hit every episode and so with that zach is there anything else that i'm missing something that we're missing i mean you,
1: you went over so many good topics you went over so wait a second oh there there is hold on hold on i'm letting the joke go too far don't play games like my brother
0: and don't play games like my brother i've been zach and i've been seth
1: and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's right,
0: right. and like second all right
1: i'm calling this one good good night
0: <laughs> yeah i think they called it good night on themselves when they released the nomad for 180 dollars <laughs> good night